The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's pray together. So come, though you have nothing. Come, He is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Lord, we thank you for the one and only Lamb slain for our sins. Lord, help us with the eyes of faith to see him clearly today through the preaching of your word. May he be more beautiful and may we feel our need of him all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Our sermon will be taken from verses 1 through 4, but I'd like to begin reading back just a little bit into chapter 2, around about verse 20. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you as a kingly gift. Please hear it as such. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I I believe I've said it before. If I have, uh, you'll hear it again. If I haven't, it'll be brand news to you, and you'll hear me uh, in the future say it many times again. Theology has consequences. If we just think about some of the, the titanic, huge statements that we say that we believe, we confess them as true, Uh, and we say them as Christians, and you were to just take a a half of a step back and consider the truthfulness of them, you would quickly realize that you can't just say that and, and there not be sweeping, huge repercussions and effects on your life. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean that if these things that we confess and believe are true, Many of them that we've sung today, you know, and with songs that are extremely familiar to us, 
if we could just isolate some of the things that we've said and then put after that statement, therefore, you would quickly start to spell out the repercussions of those doctrines that we believe. Now, one of them that we have been looking at in the book of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. That he is a full, free, sufficient Savior, and in him we have no lack, right? That has consequences. That has repercussions. That has, if you'd, if you'd endure the, the turn of a phrase, that has oughtness behind it. Another way you could say that is uh, because Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, he is also then consequentially an all-consuming Savior. Because Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, he is also by necessity an all-consuming Savior. You might say, well, what's the, what's the relationship between all-sufficient, lacking in nothing, and, and then, therefore, that he would be all-consuming. It goes something like this. If Christ was not a sufficient Savior, and he could save partially, and then you must, by, by necessity, go outside of Christ to complete or fill up that salvation, then he would have then no right to demand from you all that you are. Right, because he's not sufficient for you. But he is sufficient for you. There's actually nothing lacking in the salvation that he brings. And it's because of that, the fact that he is all that his people need him to be, that he is by necessity an all-consuming savior. He deserves, he has the right over all of you. Not some mythical, mystical piece that you think needs saving. The whole man, the whole woman needs redeeming. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the one who does that by rights deserves everything you are. It's actually tied inseparably to the abounding sufficiency of the Savior. So the very simple major point that we want to convey this morning is this. Brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ, your Savior is an all-sufficient Savior, able to save to the uttermost. Therefore, he is an all-consuming Savior and worthy of all all of his people, not just numerically, but all of what and who you are individually. And we want to consider that under two headings this morning. The first is that in light of such an all-consuming and all-sufficient Savior, our lives then need to be aimed in their entirety at the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives need to be aimed in their entirety at the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, 
you'll notice uh, that the way that Paul opens up ver- or chapter three, it's, it's just beautiful. It, it's wonderful the way that Paul draws in the listener yet again as a as well spirit inspired author that he was. He is also a good pastor. And he, he wants the listener, you, and, and well, initially uh, those in Colossae, but, but you this morning to hear each and every word and to engage each and every word so that when he says in the opening of three, if then, and so he's asking you a bit of a question. Now it's rhetorical as we've said before, so don't stand outside and, and answer it out loud, but answer it at least in your heart. If you, have been raised with Christ. Now, now just stop right there before we ever move on. Consider the magnitude of what he's just asked you. Consider the theological weightiness of that question. Have you been raised up with the Savior. We, we sung of the resurrection at a few different points this morning. Christ is risen from the dead. And Paul says, and you with him. In his life, like, and there's, there's a few points within redemptive history where this, this phrase bubbles up in the heart and the mind of of every sin-ruined sinner who's at least aware of their ruin in seeing their sin and their need for a Savior. There's this, this, come, Lord Jesus, and save. And so in the incarnation, what do we, what do we sing of? It, it, it's the answer to the, the plea and petition of, of the people of God. Come, Lord Jesus. And he came. And then he died and went into the grave. And then there's that same soul-wrenching ache of a question as he's in the grave. Come again, Lord Jesus. And in the resurrection, he bursts forth from the bondage of death. And Paul says, I got a question for you. Were you raised up with them? It's not a maybe. It's a yes or a no. There's no qualifications, nuances, explanations, or fine point at the bottom. Were you, if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian You have been raised up with the resurrected Savior. When he bursts out of the grave, it's like you could see in the shadows. There I am with him. You could see behind him a host in his victory, triumph, train. There was a, I mean, it was God's resounding answer to this question. Can man be saved? And on the morning of resurrection, heaven resounds with, yes, he can. Now Paul says, that wonderful theological reality has consequences. Wonderful consequences, vast consequences, but consequences nonetheless. It is not for you so that you and I could just be fat-headed Christians and say, 
Isn't it neat that we rose up with Christ? Yeah, the technical term is union with Christ, but I mean, everyone knows that. Is that the end of that doctrine? No. You are raised up with the Savior. Therefore. Now there is just so much wrapped up in that beautiful word, therefore. That therefore will explain or could describe the rest of your life as a Christian. It would all flow out of that reality of Christ is raised and therefore I've been raised and have new life in him. Everything that you are and do as a Christian has to flow from that. It's not just a point of theology that we put on the shelf and admire and dust off occasionally. No, it is the sum and substance of who and what we are as the new covenant people of the resurrected king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The therefore that Paul (coughs) brings first to our attention is that if that's you, and 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 I pray and trust to God that that would then describe most everyone assembled here this morning, that that you would be able to say a hearty, truthful amen. Have you been raised with Christ? Amen, I have. Good. Therefore, what should your life now look like? You've been raised from the dead. You have life in him. What does that life look like? Seek the things that are above. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the whole trajectory of your life now as a Christian is bound to where Christ is. He is the sum and substance of your life. He is life itself to you. Now that life that you live in Christ, you'll get to this in just a little bit, it's not live for you. You used to live like that back when you lived a life that was more like death than life, but now that you have newness of life, real life, life for the first time and life that once begun never ends, that life could be summed up in a few, well, really huge and inclusive phrases, not least of which is this. Now seek the things above, or the way he technically says it is the above things where Christ is. It's as though all of your Christian life, and you might say like, what are the things? Well, I think he tells you where Christ is. And so another way you could say it would be something like this. Christian, seek Christ and all that is related to Christ. Those are the above things. Those are the things that you are called in the word of God to pursue. Now, excuse me, he doesn't offer this by way of of positive uh, recommendation. It's actually, I know you're hoping for grammar. Guess what you get today? Grammar. So it's an imperative. It's a command. It's a pattern that you've seen over and over and over again in the New Testament. 
indicatives, I know you're like, I was hoping you'd say that word today. Indicatives lead to imperatives. The indicatives, this is what and who you are in the gospel. Now those, that foundation then leads to the imperative. Now therefore live like this. Now don't get those squirreled around. I don't know if it's a proper term of using squirrel, but it'll work. Often we say this, if I do, 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 then the gospel reality of save, save, saved. Totally backwards. He has saved you. This is what you are. Now in that life, the duties, the imperatives, the joyful privileges that come with that. If you turn these around, you have, and we'll talk about this in the, in the afternoon as well, you have rank legalism that cannot save you. If you do not get saved until you live right, guess what's never going to happen? You're never going to get saved. But God in mercy raised you with Christ. That's who you are. Now live out of that new life. That's, that's the order. And if we fail to get it right, we fail on the gospel. You've been raised, gospel indicative, reality. Now seek gospel or moral imperative. Now live in the newness of that life. This word that he uses for (coughs) seek means uh, that it's in the presence, meant to be a perpetual way of life. It's not like I sought him. I signed the inside of my Bible and put the day. Like, oh, that's great if you can do that, whatever. But that's not the sum and substance of what he's saying. This is to be every day when you get up in the morning, I have an objective. I seek Christ in all things that are related to him. And, and then I stop seeking him when I lay my head down on my pillow and I go to sleep. And the next day when I wake up, guess what I do? I have an objective today as a Christian. I seek Christ and all things related to Christ. And every moment of that day then is spent in pursuing that until the day that I will run out of days. And then I get him the one that my soul has sought every day. I I actually get to lay, and this is not metaphorical or, or anything like it, I get to lay my hands on the prize of the one I sought. He'll be mine. And I'll be his, no longer separated by time and space. This seeking that Paul is calling for is described as a devote, serious effort to realize one's desires or objective, to strive for, to aim at, to try to obtain. It has elements of desire and wishing in it, So it's like it's got passion and desire as well as striving and direction. It, it is the whole man or the whole woman going towards moving after with body and heart and will Christ that I might have 
him in every area of my life. Now, we might be tempted <coughs> to take that, the above things, and be like, that's kind of generic or ethereal. I don't know how to do that. Well, you can seek the, the person who is Christ and all the things that surround him. Now, notice the way that Paul further describes this Lord Jesus Christ, whom we seek and all things that inv- are related to or uh, associated with him. Seek the above things where Christ, and then he'll give you two elements of this, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that would actually be a second, uh, a second aspect. The first, where Christ is, is indicative of a place. You might say, well, where is he? Well, he's still incarnate. He's still the God-man. And so he will ever be. And he ascended in the clouds. And he is now in heaven. That's, that's the place where Christ is. So the seeking of the Christian life is aimed specifically heavenward, where Christ is, the place. But it's not just a place, it's also, for lack of a better term, an employment. He's actually doing something there. It's not like, hey, fun fact, he's at the right hand. No, no, there's actually... Now, so much meaning involved with him being at the right hand. And it's not just like a place where you happen to sit. It's not like Jesus is a Baptist. And he's like, that's my seat. <laughs> now, one, someone stole my seat this morning and has repented. He gave it back, and I appreciate that. That's not what's going on here. You might be like, I, you see, I have biblical warrant for where I sit, where I sit. No, no, that's not it. To sit at the right hand is to rule and reign. It's actually taken from Psalm 110. If memory serves me right and I should check stuff before I say stuff, I think it's the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. If it's not the most, it, it is way, way up there. Psalm 110 verse 1 and 2 says, Yahweh said to my Lord, this is an extremely messianic psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so I, I would lovingly push back <coughs> and if, to those who would say, Christ is in heaven. He's at the right hand. I'm not pushing back on that part yet. But he's not ruling. Say, phooey, he's not ruling. Psalm 110, what's the thing that's said to him? Rule, not after all your enemies have been uh, weighed to uh, waste. Rule in the midst of them with your scepter. What is he doing right now? Ruling in the midst of his enemies until all are made a footstool for his feet. We're not waiting some future rule and reign, although there, there we could speak of kingdom culmination or fruition, but what is he doing right now? He's actually enthroned at the right hand, ruling and reigning, and so that is his employment, and that is his place, and Paul says, Christian, guess what? You seek him there in that place and there in that employment. He's your king who rules and reigns over you. Chase him down. You might 
might say, well, he didn't argue what parts of my life. All of it. Everything. Your strength, your mental capabilities, your energy, your time, all aimed at him and the pursuit of him and the expanding of his kingdom. Now, he goes a step, what you might say, further in verse (coughs) 2, and he says, now, second imperative, not second point, just the second imperative, set your mind on the things that are above, and he'll draw a distinction between the things that are above and the things that are below. Different than seek, but related to it. So he's asking, or he's calling for, he's commanding that Christians be heavenly minded, that that we actually spend time not just going through the motions. Because I wonder if he if he didn't add this piece, if we might be able to say, you know what? I'm going to do the right stuff as a Christian. I'm going to check the boxes that need checking. I'm going to jump through hoops that need jumping. And that's just the things that I do. But he adds, think, that this would consume the inner man, not simply just the externals. Oh, it would have repercussions on the externals, but that you would in your mind and in your heart and deep in your soul would think on Christ and the things that relate to Christ. That that would consume your thoughts in the daytime and in the nighttime. Again, a presence imperative. This should be a way of living. As one commentator put it, you must not only seek heaven, but you must also think heaven. Or as Douglas Moo put it, he said, to think refers not to a purely mental or intellectual process, but to a more fundamental orientation of the will. The verb suggests the basic inner attitude that lies behind and is part of the seeking of verse 1. The Christian's not just a Christian in the way that they live, they're a Christian in the way that they think. He repeats the above things where Christ is, contrasted with the earthly things or the things that are below. So we're to set our, and, and, and there's that, uh, an implied repeating of the verb, set your minds on the things above, and then there's an implied, and then do not set your mind on the things that are on the earth. Now some would hear that, and they would say, well, I understand what Paul's saying, but it's never good when you say, I understand what the Bible says, but. Don't put a but at the end of that. Just say, I understand it. But some do. And so they would say, well, if I'm going to be that heavenly minded, that would make me of no earthly good. I've, I'm not that old. But I've been in church my entire life. Guess what I've never found? Never found one person so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly or worldly good. But guess what I have found? I've found many Christians so worldly minded there were to little to no heavenly good. I think it's a false conundrum that we would say, like, I would just walk around with my head in the clouds and I, I wouldn't feed my kids and I wouldn't go to work and I would If that's you, you have bigger problems. Various and sundry ones at that. I've never met that. 
this is not an ethereal, like we would, and I think it's, it's a huge mistake that we would <coughs> accuse the Puritans of this, where they were just of no worldly good. Like you inherited the world that they crafted, and I'm really thankful for it with the religious freedoms that they helped found. It's not being so heavenly minded that you're like, I don't take, because maybe moms would be like, you know what? Uh, thinking about Jesus or caring for the kids. <sighs> Sounds like a break. I'm thinking about Jesus. They are not opposed to one another. They are overlapped and intertwined with. I think of Christ and pursue Christ in the way that I engage my labors in the world, in the way you keep the home, in the way that you instruct little one's hearts towards the king of heaven, in the way that you're a witness in the world, in the way, that's what it is to pursue Christ and all that relates to him. It's not one or the other, they, they are inseparable. Now if you want a list of what things of the earth are, Stick around for the afternoon service because he will actually give you a list of the things that he has in particular uh, that are not of heaven but are down here of the earth. And uh, the list is just, it's not a super fun one, but it's really obvious what he would have in mind. When he says, don't set your mind on the things that are down on, on the earth, and then in the list he talks about abusive speech. That's something that shouldn't fill your mind. Reaming uh, people out who bear God's image with your mouth. That's not seeking Christ in heaven. Being an angry person, Paul will say, not seeking Christ. So he, he'll get the, don't worry, in case you were worried, don't worry, he'll get there. But it's in the pursuit of all of these things that we chase down Christ, I would say the one who is the most heavenly minded is then ultimately of the most worldly good, if we could kind of mix and match our metaphors a little bit like that. This should consume the trajectory of the Christian's life and thoughts. The banner that could stand over all pursuits, Christ, and all things related to him. Secondly, Because Christ is an all-sufficient Savior and therefore an all-consuming Savior, the Christian life is a life that is hidden in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 3. You've been raised with Christ, verse 1, verse 3. You have died. Now it's interesting, very, very similar uh, to what he says in verse 20 of chapter 2. If you just look, drop your eyes um, back up to, if I can find it. Uh, If with Christ you've died to elemental spirits, there we go, we can use English. Uh, Why do you live to them? Very similar way of saying it, but in our uh, verse, he, he actually doesn't say with Christ. I do think that there's an implied with Christ in there, but there's a terseness, there's a a shortness, uh, a brevity with which Paul speaks in verse 3 that I think is instructive for us. On the one hand, he reminds you that as a Christian, you've been raised to new life. And then in another sense, he reminds you that you've died. 
Now in verse 20, he says you died with Christ, and there was this sense of our uh, union with Christ in his death, and death to the law, and death to the worldly regulations. But there's another sense, another way in which I think he might mean it here. We die not just to the law and worldly regulations, but you died to uh, probably the greatest tyrant in your life. You. You died to you. You are no longer the master of your fate and the captain of your own soul. You died. There's a a, a beautiful uh, interview with George Mueller, a fantastic man of faith, who if if you've not read much of him, if you read just on his life of prayer, you'll be horribly convicted. Then you read what he did with... uh, caring for orphans, and you know, he'd be even more convicted. But there would, they asked him, how have you been able to do all the great things that you've done? I mean, the, uh, the, the number of orphans that he alone was responsible for caring for was astronomical. This was his response. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will died to the world and to its approval or its censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since that day, I have only to show myself approved unto God. Is the Christian a person who lives Absolutely. Is a Christian a person who has died? Absolutely. Died to their wants and wishes. Died to their plans. So that the life that you now live, it's not your life. We have to get our hearts to wrap their arms around this truth. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, and therefore he is an all-consuming Savior, and therefore my life, I should get rid of that way of talking about it. It's his. It doesn't belong to me anymore. And so I can be at peace with the providences he brings into my life. It's not my life. I can be at peace with the portion that he has for my life. It's not my life. I can, I, can, I can be at peace with walking by faith through difficult and dark seasons. Why? Well, it's, it's not my life. He owns it. And he's the king and master of heaven. And so he gets to decree and to determine the things that are in, well, what I foolishly call my life. And the same is true for you. If you're a Christian, you're a man or a woman that does not belong unto themselves. It's just like what the Heidelberg Lord's Day 1 says. You're only comfort in life and in death. That I am not my own. The first thing that had to give utterance into the key to what is the life of comfort. I am not my own, but belong 
body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the Christian. And that is their all-consuming Savior. He owns all of you. And he set you free from the tyranny both of the devil and of you. Lest we think the devil was the only tyrant that we faced, this thing here is a wretched ruler too. And what a gift that I belong, body and soul, to him. Notice what he says. You've died and your life. I mean, there's, a, it, there's just a fascinating contrast between this dead in some senses and life in another sense. So you've died to yourself and died in these uh, ways, but your life in the, that you live is now. Beautiful way that he puts it. Hidden with Christ in God. You might say, what is a Christian? And there's so many different ways you can look at answering that. It is, a Christian is a man, woman, or child who believes in Jesus Christ, and therefore the life that they live is in a very real sense hidden within Christ. Now, memory is a little foggy. Where is he at this moment, according to Paul? In heaven, seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. So no matter what is going on in your life, whether it is a wonderful season where like things are going well, or at least okay, or wretchedly difficult, you can say at any moment then in that life, no matter what is going on around me or in my life, I am hidden in Christ. There's, there's union language that is unavoidable in this text, but there's also the, the, the sense behind the word to hide or hidden is that it is kept away in a safe place. To use John's language as he records it from Christ, we're in Christ's hand, and he is in the Father's hand. Isn't that the same way that he describes it in, in our text? With Christ in God, in, in, in God the Father. So how secure are you at this very moment? You might say, I don't feel very secure. I didn't ask, how do you feel? I asked, how secure are you? You could not be more secure than you are at this moment. You might say, you don't know the details of my life. You're right, I don't. But the one who holds you does. And you could not be more secure than you are at this moment. If you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you as the first fruit and down payment of what awaits you. You want to know how serious God is about making good on all of his promises? He says, well, here, here is the Spirit. He'll dwell in you until I take you to be with me. Kind of a big deal. 
in the Christian life. He would not do that if the rest of the payment of all of that that is laid up for the saints were not guaranteed. In fact, the Spirit is called in another place the guarantee of what he will do. You could not be more secure. You are hidden with the King of Kings upon his throne. There's no safer place to be. There's a, a hymn that we sing from time to time here, and I should have wrote down the title, but I was like, I'll remember it. I don't. So one of you will come up afterwards and tell me, and I'll be like, oh yeah, totally. We are, see now I just got to find it here. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given, more happy, now jumping up to heaven, more happy, but not more secure. And when all earthly ties have been riven. Beautiful way that the poet puts it. He says, when the saint enters the shore of heaven, they'll be happier. The sin and sin's effect and sin's stain won't be there. I think that's a pretty good way of describing it. I'll be happier. So while they might be happier in that place, they won't be more secure in that place. That would indicate that there was some insecurity here in their position with Christ. There is none. You are, in your union with Christ, hidden with him upon the throne. What a comfort that is. What a comfort in the midst of of struggling against sin. What a comfort in the midst of sorrow and loss. We stop looking at ourselves and defining ourselves by all these lesser things. Who are you? I'm hidden with Christ. And none can change that. He has me in his very bosom, as it were. The reality of what the, the high priest foreshadowed by bearing both the gems and the stones upon his chest to show their nearness to his heart. The Christians say, that was a shadow to point to me and my Savior that he would bear me as precious upon his breast even as he sits upon his throne ruling and reigning. Not only are we hidden with Christ in God, but look at verse 4. <clears throat> we don't stay hidden forever. And when Christ, notice how he uh, describes or defines Christ. It's right there on, on the page in front of you. Couldn't be more beautiful. When Christ, your life. That's like another title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, your very life. If Christ is your life, I would ask you, how secure is your life? Do you think anyone would be able to take 
him off his throne? Do you think anyone would be able to snatch his life from him? No. No, in fact, God's word says in one of Paul's letters that the Christ, now risen, will never die again. I'd say that's pretty secure life. When he who is your life, Christian, the one you seek, the one who occupies your mind, the one who directs the, the, the entire direction of your life in all the various avenues, when that one who is seated upon the throne in heaven appears when he comes back for his people, notice the union that we have there. When the one in whose bosom the church resides, you also will appear with him in glory. What a promise. What a promise on two different levels. That the loved ones that we've lost, and we've lost several even just this year, When he shows up, guess who will be physically in his train, marching behind him? The loved ones that we've lost. The brothers and sisters who have gone ahead of us as the church triumphant, raised from the dead, with him in glory, under his battle Banners. (sighs) What do you make of that? What do you do with that? We'll see them again, physically. Oh, we could just stop right here and just meditate on that piece of it. And, and, And not just others, but you. If you are not alive, When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, you'll be under those battle banners with him. You'll be marching with the army of the Lamb as he sets up his eternal rule and reign and throne. You will be revealed with him, such a small word to describe such a reality, in glory. You might say, what's that like? I can't begin to tell you. But it'll be awesome. And sin will not be there. You, whose life has been knit inseparably to him in this life, will have your life knit inseparably with him then. And so on the day of days, whether you're here to see it and are are transformed into glory then, or you'll be raised from the dead and with the army of the saints, he comes again to rule and to reign, sin dispelled, judgment rendered, now no longer limited by time or by the effects of sin, and in the new earth, we bask in the glory of the light of the Lamb. That sounds a whole lot like an all-consuming Savior to me. That one is worthy to be followed. That one's worthy to be worshipped. 
that one is worthy, as hard as it is, to trust with the care and the watch of those who go before us. I can trust a king like that. I can trust his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And I can trust that on that day of days, all the saints triumphant under the banners of the Lamb that say forgiven and loved will with him in glory be revealed. That which was hidden from our earthly eyes will now be undeniable to all who see it. You might say, I don't see that I'm hidden with him. One day you will. One day you will. One day there'll be no room for doubting. And until that day, brothers and sisters, seek Christ with everything that you are. He is a sufficient and a consuming Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would bind our hearts inseparably to your promises. We pray that we would believe them. We pray as the father of Mark 9 prayed, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We ask, oh God, that you would lead us to know how to seek you, to know how to think upon you, to know how to live a life that's aimed at heaven while we still abide on the earth. Oh God, we confess we're so often foolish. Send forth your wisdom and your word into our lives. Cause us to be a people who on this side of heaven are the church militants and that we fight for the Lord Jesus Christ until we take our place among the church triumphant and march under his banners. Hasten that day, we pray, O God, in our Savior's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.